This is an ABC podcast. Now, if you're a newcomer, um, I should say that here at Blueprint, we we rummage through the, the cultural ingredients of, of a good life, we think, the design, architecture, food, travel, fashion. It's all about, well, a bit of it's about trends, and we see them in interiors, in, in garden design, most certainly, and, well... In fashion, yes, that's what it is. <laughs> but but the food and and the dining scene, that too is is a place of, of constant change and evolution. Uh, food forecaster Besha Riddell is, is here to take a, a glance into the 2023 culinary crystal ball. She is the chief dining critic at The Age, Good Food Australia and Good Weekend magazine, and good friend of the program. Besha, welcome. Thanks so much. I, I, I find myself thinking as we begin to talk about food trends, why do they have to be trends? Why can't we just leave things as they are? Oh, that would be so boring. <laughs> <laughs> We'd all still be eating just overcooked roasted potatoes if that was the case. Yeah, there is that. All right. So <laughs> before we look ahead, 2022, the year just passed, if you had to sum that up in a, in a handful of words, what would they be? Hmm... Um, I would say expensive, delicious fusion. Nice. Let's go back. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Maybe not so much the expensive part. Let's just stick with the delicious fusion. <laughs> well, the, but the expensive part is only going to continue, is it not? And and, and we hear in, in, in public discourse um, nothing more prominent than the issue of cost of living. And that, of course, has an impact on, on dining and hospitality. It definitely does, um, as does the kind of aftermath of COVID. You know, um, dining is definitely in a kind of labour shortage crisis. People are needing to be paid more. Ingredients are more expensive. It's definitely more expensive to eat out now and was for the last year and is going to get more expensive as we go forward, I think. And, you know, ingredients are more expensive in general. I think anybody who shops can attest to that. You know, dining used to be seen as this great luxury that only wealthy people did. <laughs> really, you know, if you think about even 20 years ago, those New Yorker cartoons of the restaurant scene was always making fun of wealthy people <laughs> because only wealthy people really ate out very often. And it's become democratized in those last 20 years, which is a wonderful thing. But I think it's going to slip back towards um, more of a luxury. I mean, there's there's elements of that around the sort of the cost of living thing, but you mentioned labour shortage, and I suspect one of the things that'll have an impact is actually paying people their worth, um, which has a big impact on the overall costing of a, of a restaurant business. It does, and you know, people want to have lives outside of work. They want to have kids. They want to have dogs that they have time to walk. And it's a really difficult industry to do all those things in. If you think of other industries that are kind of shift work with weird hours, nursing, things like that, are very heavily unionized, have really strong protections. Um, and hospitality at this point really doesn't. So I think mm. that the way that places are coping with that one way is yes they're going to have they're paying more they're needing to pay more there were stories last year about you know people paying 40 50 for a dishwasher just because they an hour for a dishwasher just because they they that was the going rate you know but i think also smart operators will understand that there's other things they can do as well you know policies they can put in place around quality of life things like that yeah, really important. And I guess there's the thing there for the consumer to 
um, not not coast on other people's hardship. You know, to expect that an element of their bill is paying the people in this place a living wage to do what they do to bring this food to your table. Absolutely, and I think food probably needs to be more expensive in general, just because. If you look down the food chain, whether it be at a restaurant or just at the you know shopping mall, the least protected people are usually on that chain. Whether mm. it's a farm worker or a delivery person or the person serving you, whoever in that chain of events is has the least protection is the person who's you know actually paying for your discount. You know. 2023, if, if, if we were going to say, okay, this, this is a dish that at the end of this year we will say, hmm, that summed up what happened in 2023, what might that dish be? Part of me thinks Melbourne in particular is having this huge sandwich boom right now. Um, <laughs> but that is partly, you know, to do with some of what we're talking about, which yes. is chefs who might otherwise open something more fine dining are saying, I want better hours. I want to be able to close at 3 p.m., go home to my kids. I'm, you know, I'm going to open a sandwich shop. I can do that. And it's cheap. And so people can get it for, you know, under 20 bucks, hopefully. And yet it is a showcase of my creativity. So part of me thinks that, you know, that trend, whether it be sandwiches or something else that is less expensive. We've all watched The Bear. Come on. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I also really have high hopes for food becoming more explicitly Australian. And and that's already just Hmm. started to happen. But um and, and I think there's a lot of ways you can interpret that. But uh, yeah, I, I want to dig into that. What, what does that mean, Australian food? Well, I think that that's a question that people have been asking for a long time. Certainly when I lived in the US, people always said, oh, you know, I, I had arguments where people said there's no such thing as Australian food, which I think is, you know, wrong. <laughs> but um, generally, even the food of America is really the food of its immigrants, right? Mm-hmm. Um, very many people are eating uh, Native American food, although they should be eating more of it. But I think when I came back to Australia five years ago, I was shocked at how many of the restaurants were trying to mimic restaurants in New York or Paris or London. You know, there was very few places that were really proudly Australian and they were doing it pretty well, but it also just then had no sense of place. Why would you come all the way to Sydney to eat something that you could get in the US or somewhere else, you know? So I think it's the food has been becoming more explicitly Australian. The obvious kind of trend, if you want to call it that, is the native ingredients trend. Mm. Um, But I think up until pretty recently, that's been like, I'm going to bung some Davidson plum on top of a cocktail. (laughs) You know, it's like (laughs) not been particularly thoughtful or respectful. And I think that that's changing. I think people are looking to use these ingredients in ways that are kind of more thoughtful. I also just think, you know, celebrating the stuff that's unique to Australia. So even our kind of more lowbrow food cultures that, you know, the the dim sim, the whatever. <laughs> this, I'm a big fan of a salad sandwich, those type of things that like you can't really get them elsewhere in the world. And so let's draw from those kind of 
those things as much as we do from, you know, you see all these places that are like, we're in New York style pizzeria. I'm like, why? Be a Melbourne pizzeria. (laughs) You know? Wait, waiting to see some sort of a fine dining deconstruction of a Chico roll or something. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I'm all for it. I think that's great. And then, you know, there's the other thing, which is that the immigrants to this country have had a very different experience than immigrants to other countries or people who stayed in those countries. So I think that our, you know, people who are food obsessed kind of have been a bit snobby about authenticity when it comes Mm. to um, particularly Asian cuisine. But isn't that an interesting thing? I mean, you know, the counter to the let's be Australian point is that in in sort of post-colonial Western cultures like ours, like in in the United Mm -hmm. States, like in much of Europe, although actually Europe's probably a bad, bad example because of strong intrinsic food culture, but... In, in immigrant countries, we're we're fetching up on a, a sort of a, an international ubiquitous, um, you know, a blend of influence in cuisine. I mean, there's something almost universal about it, and as there should be, because this is the same melting pot that arrives in various places and does similar things. If you look at, for instance, Italian food, there is a very clear, proud. A, a very clear and proud Italian American cuisine, right? Yeah. You don't hear people say that in Australia, even though it exists. There is an Australian Italian cuisine that is very unique to Australia that we should be proud of. Hmm. I think Chinese American food is its own its own distinct cuisine from Chinese food. Australian Chinese food is distinct from Chinese food. And 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 I think we have been snobby about these things in the past because we've seen these as dumbing down of certain cuisines, but it doesn't have to be that way. And it doesn't even have to be seen that way. And I think that a lot of the most exciting restaurants that opened certainly last year in Melbourne were the expressions of kind of either kids who were born elsewhere and grew up in Australia or second generation, third generation Australians who were taking stuff from the cultures that they grew up with from their heritage and then mixing it with the cultures that they came to think of as delicious in Australia. So the idea of authenticity, if you don't, if you don't look at it kind of holistically, you are discounting the really true lived experiences of people who have, you know, feet in more than one kind of culture. So, you know, and that food can be really, really thrilling when somebody Mm is doing it from a a place that isn't just, oh, let's bung some wasabi in the mashed potatoes. Like that's the old fusion that's, you know, pretty lame because there's just no reason for it. I think this new kind of fusion, which I kind of call reclamation cooking, it's people reclaiming the narrative around their own foodways, you know, is is a wholly different thing. And it's really exciting. To me, it's the most exciting thing happening in food. And it's sort of, I mean, there are other examples of how this works with like a, a, a sort of a third generation diasporic experience. You know, you have a, a first generation that tries to recreate its life in a new place. You have a second generation that turns away from it entirely. Then you have a third generation of one place trying to revere that other place of origin. And also just saying, I'm going to cook the food that I think is delicious and I don't have anything to prove to anybody. I don't have to prove that I am, you know, I don't have to prove how Thai I am. I don't have to prove how Australian I am. I am who I am and this is the food I want to eat. And, you know, when chefs cook what they want to eat, that's usually when we get the best stuff. A star ingredient for 2023? Who would you like to see shine? I would like to see more Australian seafood beyond 
kingfish. I mean, kingfish is great, but we've had a lot of it. <laughs> Let's have some more diversity in Australian seafood because we have so much that is so wonderful. Not a lot of it ends up on our plates. Um, a lot of it ends up in Asia, honestly. So let's have more of it here. And there are increasing, um, and especially in regional dining, relationships between, you know, sort of paddock to plate relationships with, with restaurateurs growing their own stuff. That seems to be a bit of a thing, which I suspect will only grow. I think that that's one of the reasons behind the regional dining boom. And there has been a huge regional dining boom I do two reviews a week, which is a lot. So that's, you know, 100 restaurants a year, basically, to review in Melbourne. And I do struggle to find things worthy of reviewing with that many in the city. But mm. I have a list that's like 30 deep of things I need to get to in regional Victoria. And I think a huge part of that is because being able to walk out your kitchen door and pick something and go back in and cook it is is a pretty lovely thing to be able to do. So I think that's part of why people, um, chefs, uh, are moving to the regions in such numbers. Yeah. The other thing, and this is kind of, I'm not sure what I think about this, restaurant merchandise. Well, I think it kind of goes along with that. I have a friend in the US who had a podcast called Food is the New Rock. And, <laughs> you know, his his shtick was interviewing chefs about music and interviewing musicians about food. But but <laughs> the point was that, you know, chefs are the new rock stars. And so it would make sense then if um, you wear, wear a band T-shirt, why not wear a restaurant T-shirt? That's where I see it coming from. I mean, I think that it was certainly in COVID a, a way for people to kind of make some money when they were closed or only doing takeaway or whatever. But if you look at, you know, Attica has T-shirts and they look like concert T-shirts. They're very rock inspired. So get a sort of Distasio sunglasses or... <laughs> Fesha, thank you. Uh, it, it, on the face of that that brief skim, it looks to be a year to savour. So uh, we will see. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be great. Fesha Riddell uh, is Chief Dining Critic at The Age, Good Food Australia and Good Weekend magazine. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.